All right. Yeah, good morning, Restoration. My name is Zach Carrera. Many of you all probably know me. I'm one of the pastors here. If you don't, welcome. I'm glad to see you all. And uh, this morning, if you've been with us at all, really any time in the past, you know, eight, nine months, you know that we've been in 1 Samuel, going through 1 Samuel really chapter by chapter. And so we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 28 this morning. Uh, if you want to turn uh, the Pew Bibles in front of you, it's page 250 if you want to turn there. And uh, this is the famous Star Wars chapter for any, any Star Wars fans out there. The medium at Endor. I was corrected in the first service. It's not a planet. It's the forest moon of Endor, okay? Um, but don't worry, no sermon on that Endor today. Um, but anyway, last week, you all might remember we were in chapter 26. Today we're in chapter 28. And that's because 27 just continues uh, the wilderness journey uh, of David that we've looked at a couple times. And so we're going to move forward and go ahead to chapter 28. And we'll talk a little bit about 27 and how it relates to this chapter um, today. But we're going to dive into chapter 28. So let me go ahead and pray and then we'll jump in. Dear Lord God, thank you for your word that we can hear you, that you are not silent uh, to us ultimately because we have your word here that is for your people uh, to be convicted to be encouraged, to be exhorted uh, across time and space for your church to be built up. May we hear your word, listen to your word uh, today um, as you speak through us. And I pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you uh, like TV shows, if you're a TV person um, and you've watched TV shows for, any, for a long period of time, I would say like if you're my age, or maybe a little bit younger. Uh, you might remember a TV show that broke onto the scene in 2008, super popular. And by the end of the series, which I think was 2013, 2014, um, it was the number three most watched uh, cable television show, only behind Sopranos and Sex in the City. So it was widely popular. And that was, of course, if you haven't guessed, Breaking Bad. So Breaking Bad came out about 12 years ago and it gained wide acclaim and popularity. And so as a refresher, if you've seen it or if you haven't seen it, uh, it's the story of Walter White, shy, timid chemistry teacher. And you see in episode one, he actually gets diagnosed with cancer. And of course, everything starts swirling around him. How is he gonna provide for his family? He has a son with cerebral palsy. His wife gets pregnant. They have debt. You know, he's only a teacher, so they're not making um, a bunch of money, of course. And everything seems pretty bleak, right? So where does he turn in that? Well, he has this brilliant idea that the solution to that is to cook meth, um, which, you know, when you say it like that, you're like, this is a weird storyline. But in the show, you're like, man, I'm going to keep watching this show. This is good. Um, so in the midst of this darkness and hopelessness and the pressures of the walls just seem to be caving in, that's where he turns. He goes to, to cook meth thinking that it'll provide for his family. It'll give him money and security. And of course, he starts off with like, well, I'm not going to do too much. And a little by little, he gets a little bit more involved. But initially, it's like, well, I'm just going to cook it because I'm a chemist. There's nothing wrong with, you know, making a chemical reaction. The people selling it and using it, you know, I'm not really um, related to that. So in this, though, the point of that is that in his story, you see that he continually slowly pushes the ethical boundary because he's feeling this 
just weight of anxiety and doesn't know where to go. And I think a lot of us might be able to relate to that, whether that's your own personal story, whether it's someone you know, where you've engaged with someone that, or yourself that's pushed the boundaries as you look to find an answer or a solution uh, to a problem, where you feel hopeless, you feel like there's no way out. And so the question ends up becoming, where will I turn in the midst of this pressure, in what seems like insurmountable odds? Who will I go to to get an answer? Whose voice will I listen to? And we're gonna see, if you relate to that, which I hope you do, I think you do, we're gonna see exactly how, how Saul experiences this in 1 Samuel 20, and I don't wanna give any of it away, so we're just gonna dive in, but before I dive in, really quick preamble, the last verse of 26, we read that David has gone his own way. This is what Dan preached on last week. David's gone his own way. Saul has gone back to his place. That's how chapter 26 ended. And we're picking up here in, in chapter 28. So read with me verses 1 to 6. We're going to break this up in chunks. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put out the mediums and the necromancers, that's psychics, essentially, out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. All right, interesting start, right? 26 ends, David goes his way, we start 28, and now like David's apparently in the Philistine army, and not only that, but he's like the bodyguard of the king. And this is pretty intense because, remember, he killed Goliath. I mean, the Philistines hate David. They kill their most loved warrior. But now he's in the army. And so he does some shady things in chapter 27. But it opens up to this scene where he's in this army. And, the, you know, Israel's wondering, is the anointed king of Israel going to actually go and kill Israelites? Like, this seems pretty dire. But in this masterful, woven book of 1 Samuel, in the height of this tension, the writer stops and cuts scene leaves the, you know, kind of leaves you on a cliffhanger and goes over to Saul, right? He starts, he's like, now I'm going to go to Saul's perspective in the midst of this war. And so one thing that's uh, really important as we read this is actually geography that comes up a few times, like in the first eight verses. And so let's talk a little bit about that. So the Philistines come in, the, where they're encamped is actually in Israel. It's a really popular trade route. You can make a bunch of money if you control this valley, it also cuts Saul off from the north, some of the northern tribes because this is northern territory, all right? Then on top of that, this is a, a, at the bottom, uh, Shunem. It's this massive valley that would be ideal for chariots, which the Philistines were, you know, popular, or not, well, not popular. Let's get that straight. Powerful. They had chariots. And so Saul is uh, at Gilboa kind of up a little bit looking down at them and being like, I'm going to lose this fight. There is no way I'm going to succeed this battle. And that's where he has this fear, right? It says he's afraid, and he trembled greatly. 
So Saul sees this. He's terrified. You don't want to mess with the Philistines in this valley. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And so where does he turn? Well, this is a good start. It says that Saul inquired of the Lord. He turns to the Lord. But very quickly, the very next words, right? I think it was verse 6. It says he inquired of the Lord. The Lord did not answer him by dreams or by prophets. So this doesn't sound too good. In other words, the Lord is silent to Saul's turning to him. So what's going on here? Well, it's interesting that the Bible brings up these three things that, uh, you know, the Lord, or that Saul says he didn't, you know, speak to me through any of these. Number one, dreams. Well, as the king of Israel, he's sitting on the throne. It's basically saying the Lord is not communicating with the king of Israel directly through dreams. Urim would only be used by priests. So if you wanted to, you know, discern the will of the Lord through Urim, then you had to go to the priests. But if you remember in chapter 22, Saul went and killed a bunch of priests because they kind of helped David, you know, but not real, you know. So he was in his anger, just like wiped out all these priests except one who actually ended up going to David um, to survive. And then lastly, Samuel, we hear, is dead. So he's the main prophet of Israel. And in chapter 19, we learn that Saul has lost the allegiance of the prophets uh, because Samuel has told them, Saul's not king anymore. God has chosen David. So in terms of the Lord's silence here, in one sense, in many ways, Saul has put himself in this predicament. He's turned his own self from the Lord. He's killed the Lord's priests. He has, uh, the prophet is dead and he's lost the allegiance of the other prophets. So it seems like he's made the right choice. He's turned to the Lord, but the Lord is silent. And there's a lot of, you know, backstory as to possibly why that is. But what do you do now? Right? So he's made the right choice, presumably. He's turned to the Lord, but the Lord's silent. He doesn't say anything. And maybe you feel that right now with whatever, you know, pressure, anxiety, hopelessness, darkness that you might be feeling. You've turned to the Lord, and the Lord is silent. So what do you do now? How does Saul respond to the Lord's silence in this situation? So let's keep reading. We're going to read a larger chunk. We're going to go verse 7 to 19. Verse 7 to 19. So then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium. Again, that's a psychic. That I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there's a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other, other garments and went, and he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know that Saul has done how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, and as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me, from bringing me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. 
And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom from your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Woo! Okay, quick turn, right? So it starts off all great. Uh, you know, at least on the outside, Saul turns to the Lord. He's inquiring, Lord, what do I do with this army? But it's interesting that basically how quickly we go from verse 6, Saul inquired of the Lord. Verse 7, find me a medium so I can inquire of her. Just how quickly he reverts to the next option in the midst of God's silence. And this actually makes us want to step back and look at verse 3. Verse 3 is the setup for this whole chapter. Right, the, light, the writer is like, yo, before I go any further, I need to make it abundantly clear to y'all, you know Samuel's dead. So everything you're about to read, Samuel's dead, and Saul knows what he's about to do is wrong. He's already kicked out the mediums and the necromancers and said, you know, this is unlawful. That's Leviticus 19, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 18. Saul knows this. So before you go reading any further into this story, the writer is saying, remember these things. Samuel is dead. This is not, you know, oh, Samuel's not dead yet, or I'm going back in time. So to put it in perspective of uh, the lengths that Saul's going through, again, this interesting that he, you know, turns to a medium, and the medium's at Endor, we also have to know the geography a little bit. So Endor is on the other side of the mountain where the Philistines are. So basically you have the Philistine army, bottom of a mountain, and Saul's up here, and he's like, man, I don't want to mess with that. And the medium is on the other side of the mountain, basically in enemy territory. That's where he's willing to go to get an answer. So the Lord was silent, so where does he turn? Well, it's interesting that he's willing, or it's crazy, he's willing to risk his life to clearly break God's law in order to hopefully get an answer that saves his life, presumably. I mean, he disguises himself. He goes by night. He, you know, wheels himself around all the way to the other side of the mountain. I mean, he's going to extreme measures to cope with the Lord's silence in this situation. So he gets to the medium, and she clearly knows, like, the law of the land. She's like, why are you here? You know Samuel, or you know Saul said, don't do this, right? And he's like, don't worry about it. And, you know, for all the crash landing fans out there, remember, they go to the fortune teller. The fortune teller's like, I don't know if I can trust you because you might be the government trying to get me. Right. I mean, this stuff was happening 2000 years ago. You know, it came up even in even in our culture today. But um, at this point, what goes from good to bad. Right. Turn to the Lord. Good, bad. Decide to go to medium. Now it's going to get worse. Because. What does verse 10 say? Saul's crazy at this point. Saul swore it to her by the Lord. All right, Lord, all caps. If you see L-O-R-D in all capital letters, that's the Hebrew for Yahweh. So he's swearing by the personal name of God. And then the next line, it says, as the Lord lives. So then he's swearing on Yahweh's life that 
going and using a medium is not a bad idea. He's like, oh, don't worry about it. This is no big deal. Even though the Lord clearly said, don't do this. So Saul is spiraling so quickly out of control as he feels the walls caving in and this pressure and he's desperate for a voice to speak in to this silence. He is going to extreme measures. And so the medium ends up calling up this faithful prophet, which is also kind of ironically funny and sad because like, when has Samuel ever not said it straight to Saul? Like, what does he expect Samuel to do? Come up and be like, oh, yeah, I totally get like using mediums in this point. I would have used a medium too. Like, it's all good. Like Saul has been truthful this entire book. So for him to think that all of this was going to work out, it seems pretty, pretty crazy or intense. But I want to pause, and because we see him spiraling out of control, and it's so easy to distance ourselves from Saul and say, ah, I would never do that. That's intense. But the reality, of course, is that sin will always make us be tempted or to follow a similar pattern in which we slowly, incrementally will justify maybe previous ethical boundaries that we would have said, I would never do this. And two years later, where do you find yourself? And so I have a, a humbling personal story of that. Um, if many of you all know, I was a tutor and, uh, for middle schoolers and high schoolers while I was in seminary. Uh, but you all don't know is how I got hired as a tutor. And the secret will be revealed now. But um, basically, to get on this job, you know, it's an understandable certain number of steps that are, are fair but also hard. At least when I was getting, I'm not sure if it's still like this, but to get an interview, you had to solve a math riddle math problem. And you had to email it to the boss, or, you know, the boss, um, to, for him to get an interview. And so I passed. Sorry, I don't know why that came into my head. Uh, but so I got the interview, which is great. And the interview went well. And if you pass the interview, then you have to pass all the uh, subject tests on the things you want to tutor in. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. I'm like thinking, if I can do this math riddle, like how hard can this be? Um, but of course, it's a lot. It's like all, the, all of geometry, all of algebra one and two, all of pre-calc, all of chemistry, all of physics. And at the time, I'm like, oh, I'm going to pray. The Lord will provide. Like, I'm so thankful he's brought me to this point. And the test clearly says, do not use notes. Do this in one sitting. And I'm like, yeah, of course, I'm going to do that. And then like a week goes by, two weeks go by. I haven't got to the test yet. I'm so busy uh, being in seminary and whatnot. And so then what happens is I slowly start to justify little increments. Like I'm like, well, I'm in seminary. This is for the Lord. Like he wouldn't have brought me to this point if he didn't want me to have this job. And then I'm like, well, I'm supposed to provide for my family and $10 an hour is not going to cut it. And this is going to really help us to not take on more debt. And you know, Lord, like isn't debt sin and like, you don't want me to do that. And so I just start like slowly, incrementally, like pushing the boundary. And I'm like, well, what if I look at the test and then I'll go to YouTube. So I'll see what the topics are and I'll go to YouTube and I'll look at it or Khan Academy actually, and then I'll take the test. But it doesn't matter. Like if you're on Khan Academy, like two times the speed, like you're not going to get through five or six, like years worth of material like in two weeks it's just impossible so what ends up happening is it even gets worse what happens is rather than even looking at the test i decide like i'm gonna look at three or four problems at a time go watch youtube videos on how to do those types of problems and then take the test 
So I did that over the course of like a day or two uh, because he was waiting for me to turn these tests in. And ultimately I turn them in and that's how it went. And now I'm your pastor and like, um, so they didn't come, they didn't bring that up in the interview, you know, so sorry guys. Uh, so yeah, I'll get to the end of that story as we wrap around. But the point of that is like, similar to be like, yo, Samuel's dead. I'm like, yo, I was in seminary when this was happening. This was not 10 years ago, like before I met Christ. Um, but it's so easy to like slowly push because you feel so much hopelessness and therefore it's so easy to justify like all these actions uh, just to get what we want. And so in the same way, that's what's happening to Saul here, right? So Saul's able to ultimately speak to Samuel. They actually call Samuel up from the dead. And this, this is really a thing. It's not a fable. Side note, the Bible never says this stuff's not possible. It says don't do it. So they're called up Samuel uh, and kind of in, in the Lord's, you know, grace to a certain extent, you know, allow Samuel to come forth and speak. And we have this interesting, you know, hard conversation that, that Samuel has with Saul. And of course, it starts off with, like, why did you call me up? And Saul's like, well, the Lord didn't answer me. And Saul gets to the truth of the matter, which is, I think it was a verse 17, 16, uh, 17. The Lord has done to you as he spoke to you. Why are six, sorry, 16. Why did you ask me since the Lord has turned from you? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out your, his fierce wrath against Amalek. So in this moment, Samuel's just speaking the truth. Like if the Lord has not answered you, there's nowhere else you can go. And it's a sad, sobering reality. But Samuel's calling up all this stuff that was way back in chapter 15. And then in chapter 15, what's fascinating is the very first words, uh, the very first verse of chapter 15 is Samuel telling Saul, hear the words of the Lord. And that whole chapter is Saul not listening to the words of the Lord. And so now in this moment, as Saul is calling upon God for an answer, he's bringing up all this imagery of like, you have not heard or listened to the Lord or obeyed the Lord yet. So part of God's silence here was because Samuel himself had turned away from the Lord from the, I mean, for the past, what are we at now? 13, 14 chapters. Saul's posture was turning away. And it makes me think of, uh, if you remember Dan's sermon from last week, the tension that comes with like David and Saul and David could have killed him. And what keeps coming up in these wilderness stories of David was basically, do I take matters into my own hands? That was the question going towards David. And he always said, no, Yahweh is king. Yahweh's in charge. I'm not going to take control of this into my own, or take control of this in my own hands. Rather, here though, we see how Saul, in the Lord's silence, decides, yes, I am going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to go to a psychic. I'm going to call up a dead prophet and try and get the answer that I want. So while on the outside, it looked good, like he was technically sitting on the throne as king, even though David was anointed for like the future throne. 
He technically had cast out the mediums and the necromancers. He did technically turn to the Lord, but all of his actions are revealing how much of a facade that was. The inner reality is that he won't listen to God's word. Even though nobody else should see a medium, he's like, no, but my situation, like, that's dire enough. Like, y'all don't understand. I get to see a psychic, but you guys don't. Right? So at the end of all this is revealing his heart. And I love the way that uh, Davies, one of the commentators, wrote it. Uh, we've quoted him a lot this sermon series because his, his commentary is so good. And he, he put it this way. He said, just as in chapter 15, Saul tailored Yahweh's command to his own. Saul would have called it accommodation, but Samuel called it rebellion. Saul thought he was being prudent, but Samuel labored it, labeled it as stubbornness. Saul likes to think that he only reinterpreted Yahweh's word, but Samuel charged him with simply rejecting God's word. He says, you did not listen, Saul. That is the explanation of Yahweh's absence, or in this case, Yahweh's silence. So what now? So God has turned. God is silent. Where should Saul have turned in that moment? And this might sound counterintuitive, but in reality, Saul should have still turned to the Lord in the Lord's silence. Like verse 17 says that, you know, Samuel says, it's because you didn't obey. So in the midst of turning to the Lord, Saul was still called to obey God's commands. It doesn't give him a license to do whatever he wants, but he was still called to go to the Lord and to follow him. Now, what's interesting is thinking about how does Saul respond to this judgment from Samuel? What does he do after Samuel has said these really just sad and hopeless things to him? You're going to be dead tomorrow. So let's see what happens. In verse 20 to 25, it says, Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night, and the woman came to Saul, and when he, she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together excuse me, with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took the flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread for it, of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And they arose, and they went away that night. So how does Saul respond to God's silence and then God's judgment of truth um, in the midst of him turning elsewhere? Ironically, essentially Saul responds with silence he just collapses on the ground and nothing is said what's interesting is all the talking that Saul has done the past what 12 verses for the next six verses the only words that Saul says is no I will not eat that's it nothing else comes out of his mouth at least that's you know recorded for us and so the chapter ends with this deep somber despair they ate they went out they arose 
and they went out that night, and that's it. Cut scene. See, in the midst of that silence, imagine, I just can imagine, like, Saul's, like, glazed face. He's terrified. He doesn't know what to say. You can imagine just sitting on that bed, just staring off, like, this is the end. I don't know, you know, how would his men have responded? What do you, you know, the awkwardness of, like, I don't think I can, what do I say to Saul on the way back to the camp, right? So what, what should Saul have done in that moment? As soon as Samuel ended, what should Saul have done? Well, he should have turned to the Lord and called out to the Lord. Right? Remembering the Lord's character. He's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's all Exodus. He would have known those words. He used those same books to cast out the, the mediums and the necromancers. He could have confessed, repented, but Saul's actions show his heart. Right? Basically, at the end of it all, it was never about the Lord. It was all about his own self-preservation. And when he finds out that he will not be saved in this moment, he just resigns to silence. He's like, all right, that's it. Now, and a good example of what he should have done, because maybe you're thinking like, really? Like, didn't he already inquire the Lord? Should he call out? In 2 Samuel 12, at this point, David's king. He has an affair with Bathsheba. They have a child. The Lord's like, the child's going to die. Well, if you go to 2 Samuel 12, then you would see that it says, David went in and fasted. He went in all day and night and lied on the ground. So it sounds a lot like Saul. Remember, Saul hadn't eaten anything. He's lying on the ground. The child dies. The servants were like, why were you before the Lord, you know, doing that? And he, David says to them, I fasted and I wept. For I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me. What a different response from the King David, from the response of Saul. And that same language actually comes up in Jonah 3. The king of Nineveh says, Fast, call out to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, for who knows, he may turn from his fierce anger, and we may not perish. And that same language comes up in Joel chapter 2. That same language comes up in Jeremiah 26. In this moment, Saul could have fallen on the ground, wept before the Lord, and cried out to him based on God's character in repentance and in confession to the Lord. But instead, he's silent. And so once he's left the room, that's it. That's the end for him. Now, I remember Walter White from Breaking Bad in the beginning. He starts off thinking, I don't want to do much of this, but I just want to make money. He's self-justifying. Well, what's interesting, obviously, throughout the show, you see so many opportunities for Walter to turn back, to confess, to change, to end it, to make things right, per se. But he keeps going more and more into his sin. And what's interesting, in one of the final scenes, I don't know if it was like the last episode or, you know, one of the last couple episodes of the show, but his wife says to him, well, one more page, turn the page. She says, you better not say to me one more time, this was for family. You better not make another excuse to me. And what does Walter say? He says, you're right, I did it for me. So the very end of Walter is basically, I did it for me. It was for his own self-preservation. That was what was true for Saul. That's what's true for Walter. And in the ultimately... If you've watched the show, sorry if I'm giving it away, but, you know, since it's been out for so long, he ends up getting shot and dying. So 
Like he gets pulled into this spiral, but he never changes. He never turns. And ultimately what he's pulled into kills him. And that's it. So a few applications for us as we think about Walter and Saul and and these stories. And just I'll say up front, I get a lot of these big ideas from Dale Ralph Davies, the commentator that I mentioned, um, because they're just, they're really good and he's spot on. And the first application is this. Hear the Lord's call, turn to him away from whatever person, thing, voice you are listening to, especially if it's causing you to sin. This chapter is mainly about, you know, Saul's sin leading to God's silence. And so in that sense, this application is realizing that the most hopeless misery in all of life is to be abandoned by God. Davies says, the text is not gentle, but it's clear. There's no sugarcoating the reality. Turn to the Lord because there's nowhere else to go. As I'm, as I'm thinking about this application of, of turning away, uh, I invited some high school youth over to our house Friday night, and I was enlightened of the music of Olivia Rodrigo, which I know like the two popular songs or three popular songs on the radio, but I hadn't listened to her whole album. And everyone's like, this is the best album. So I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta listen to this. So I listened to it the next day. And what's fascinating is her songs, Jealousy, Jealousy, and Brutal, particularly, just how much they speak to the voices that, especially for youth out there, but I think all of us, just compounding and how tempting and hard it is to just constantly listen to those voices. And what we end up doing when we listen to those is really destroying ourselves. Um, and she speaks to that in her songs, but I thought that was so telling as um, just a relatable, relatable story to our to own temptation in that. So this is a, a sober warning. Turn to the Lord away from your sin so that at the end of it all, he would not be silent to us. Now, for many of us, you might not be thinking, and the reality is maybe, you know, you're not in a grievous sin. Uh, you're not consciously like, I'm turning away from the Lord. I'm, I'm going to do me and whatever. Um, so a lot of you all might be in a situation where you feel like the walls are closing in. Everything feels bleak. Everything's just despair. You don't know what to do. And you feel like the Lord has abandoned you in your most dire moment. And as an encouragement, as uh, Davies says, is I would just encourage you all to think of the bigger perspective. And I know that's easier said than done. And I'm not saying that to dismiss at all uh, the pain that you are going through. But what he says is this, that interestingly, 27 and 29 are like one story that you wouldn't think should be interrupted. And the commentators say how it's interesting. The narrator stops in the middle of that and tells the story of Saul. And what they seem, you know, what the commentators will say then is the, basically, this writer is telling us that there's something greater than the situation that we're in, that the most hopeless thing is not having the Lord. Even in the midst of the sadness, the weeping, the troubles, which the Lord wants us to, to certainly to feel those and bring those to him, but to remember the bigger perspective that in eternity God has promised to make all things right. And even in the midst of feeling his silence, that ultimately he is not silent because of the cross and he promises in the end to make it right. And so lastly, 
or, and I'll say to that point too, an example of that is Psalms, right? Psalm 13, it says, why, why have you forsaken me, Lord, forever? And so some of y'all are feeling that way. Like, I've called out to you, Lord, you're silent. Like, forever you're not going to turn towards me? But the psalmist in Psalm 13 doesn't say, okay, now I'll turn to mediums. He says, how long will you hide your face? Forever I will call on the name of the Lord my God. He continues to call out to God in the midst of that hardship. And so be assured the Lord has given us also an even greater assurance that we can turn to him and hear his call. So the final scene of Saul is actually very similar to one extent of the Last Supper. We have a meal for a king, and then the Last Supper, there's someone who takes, eats a morsel of bread, and goes out into the night. Judas. You may not have seen that coming, but that parallel, you're like, oh, Jesus. Well, that's true. But also Judas, like as a warning, notice the parallel similarities of Saul and Judas and that silent resignation of not turning to God. But of course, there's also Jesus, that in the midst of God's silence, he cried out to God. He called to him, not my will, Lord, but your will. He called out to him in the midst of the silence, why have you forsaken me, even without getting anything in response? And God never turned his back towards Jesus. All right, he never turned back towards, towards Jesus in that moment. And that was because it was for you. Jesus endured God's silence so that in the place of utter darkness, in the place of utter despair and feeling like there's no way out, that we actually might hear God's voice that says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. May you hear that voice and turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, there are so many hardships in life that whether it's our own sin, our own doing, and there's silence from you, whether it's the fact that we live in a fallen world and we feel like you are silent and we don't hear you and we wonder, where are you? May we remember that you have acted on the cross for us, that Jesus has endured the silence for us so that in eternity, our ultimate hope being eternity, that we may rejoice over hearing your voice pronounce your love for us and our adoption towards you as your children. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.